0: C.P.U. Children and Parents United, the non-profit charitable extension of the respondent, coming soon. The most precious thing I can have is privacy. Me Too pushed a great cultural reset on the world. In many ways, her allegation helped ignite a firestorm. In the Me Too era we now presume guilt instead of innocence. You are a white privileged male who has oh, no experience really. It's a very important word. She she kind of little fire way. across this country. Yeah. We all do the best we can. It's we really okay however we responded. All of our lap, we've been kicked around, we've been put in jail.
1: We've been shot at. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore.
0: In this episode, I talk with a father, a painter, a killer, and assassin. This week, Xander Barkley is the respondent. How do we hold space? To help us extract meaning, two of America's most eloquent commentators. How can anyone have right to speak for their sensitive? whole community? Them.
1: Why not? In this era of cancel culture, simply because they think that it is censorship. How should men now respond? Ow! Don't you get me. I just threw something on fire, Chris, a firecracker. Something on fire.
0: We are all response-able. We are all the respondent. Xander, thank you for joining me on the show. How are you today?
1: I'm very well indeed, Greg Ellis, here in Montreal. The sun is shining. You can almost see if I lean this way, but I'm sort of in a nook in an apartment in Westmount um, that my wife and and daughters are staying in while we shoot a show called The Republic of Sarah.
0: Ah, The Republic of Sarah. How aptly named. How is filming going?
1: It's going great. Um, It's a first-time showrunner named and uh, Jeff King, and and he has come up with a concept that is truly unique. Uh, I've never seen anything quite like it. There's a little piece of land between New Hampshire and Canada that was staked out, one for Canada and one for the U.S. back in the 1800s, and somehow the U.S. won, sort of. But it remained an open kind of question until... Someone came in to try and get the the mining rights, and the town sort of gathered together. And one person in the town, this this girl Sarah Cooper, it turns out is my daughter. This kind of absentee father who suddenly appears on the scene. After they become a republic, they they sort of withdraw and um, become their own country, with their own extradition rights, their own immigration laws, and their writing their own constitution. And it's a, it's a great lesson in civics, but because it's the CW, there's a lot of very attractive young people whose stories you can follow in order to get that lesson.
0: Yes, there are a lot of attractive young people on the CW. How marvellous. You are a father and a painter. Your father was a painter and your mother was a school teacher, I think. What led you into the world of acting and when did you first realise that you wanted to act?
1: Well, it goes back beyond my memory, I guess, because I was growing up in Brooklyn Heights, sort of already bohemian part of Brooklyn at the time, then moved to a farm outside of New York and New Jersey that was an eclectic uh, environment full of people with lots of interesting accents that I listened to. But even before we moved to the farm, I had begun leaning towards costumes over toys. And uh, my mother could sew. Uh, she had yet to become a school teacher. She was uh, went on to get her her those accreditations later, but at the time she was just a mom while my sister and I were little, and would would sew costumes for me upon request, and and I was Doctor Doolittle, I was Robin Hood, and and uh, various others, and would go out into the woods once we did move to the farm and just play endlessly in character, and not for an audience other than the small animals. The woodland creatures were my audience. Um, But, uh, yeah, and and it was the idea of time travel and travelling through space to different countries. And then as I was exposed to these different accents, that sort of became a part of it, transformation and storytelling and all that good stuff.
0: Hmm. Hmm. Sounds like a glorious childhood. You started your acting career in theatre, right? How did you come to make the transition from theatre to film
1: well uh, I suppose it was a, a greedy agent
0: <laughs> is there any who, other kind?
1: who led me down the wayward path uh, no you know it's, it wasn't I, I, I have such uh, love and, and respect for the guy that brought me from New York where I was doing a play uh, to LA after the play was over I'd found myself increasingly drawn to the nuance and the minutia of behavior in acting on stage. And I felt more and more uncomfortable, even though I had a classical training and experimental theater training from about the age of 15 on and took it very seriously. And I had a whole, you know, a whole big bag of tricks. I could do a triple pirouette, stop on a dime, boom. I had broadsword fighting skills and you know you, you take dance and voice and all kinds of things if you're taking it seriously from early on and I did but doing theatrics I, I felt a bit cheap bellowing to the person standing next to me so that the people in the back row in the back of the house could hear it just eh, irked me and so when I, I, I had an agent come see me in a play and, and uh, want to take me out west I went, uh, I'd always had a, you know, my grandmother and I read a lot of stuff together when I was really little and Steinbeck and all that stuff left such an impression on me. And uh, I think the, the West was, I uh, had a couple of cousins out there and I was longing to go to California on some part, even though all of my heart and soul at the time seemed to be wrapped up in New York City. <laughs> that sudden like opportunity to go, I went, yeah. And, you know, he, he'd gone out ahead and basically said, uh, I was just going to test the waters because I didn't know a soul and uh, I was going to do a round trip thing and stay for a couple of weeks and test the water. He goes, this is wonderful old queen. He goes, Berkeley, get out here now. Change that round trip to a one way. You're going to start working and you won't stop. You won't believe the shit walking around this town. calling it. it's an actor." And like, that was his, it was, what? I say? It, it literally hung up, like, for dramatic effect. And I, oh, okay, well, that's what I got to do. So I, I changed my round trip to a one way, broke up with my girlfriend at the time. Instead of stringing it along, and just made the big leap. It took me a while to get, get the ball rolling out there, but uh, once I did, I was, and, and once I started uh, getting accustomed to cameras, it felt like home.
0: Hmm. Yeah, actors are sense makers of the human condition, embodying personality traits, mirroring characteristics, trading, if you will, in the micro expressions of emotion. So I'm not surprised that 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 drive to step off the boards and the stage and in front of the camera was evident in your future. You mentioned theatre and the theatre family and that merry band of players that we are as artists, particularly if we're in the film industry and we're on location, how important is family to you? Not just your family of origin, your theatre family, the familial tapestry that you've created throughout your career.
1: Well, I I mean, it's funny because it it does, it it did start obviously in the theatre. Every time you do a play, you got a new family. And uh, with the cast and whoever the, the technical crew might be, the director, and if you're lucky enough to have the playwright, in the process, and you band together for that time, that month, or whatever of rehearsal, and however many months uh, the run is, and then you move on, and you you hold on to those friendships. You get deeply in tight with that family, and you move on, and you hang on to some, and some you lose track of. Some move, go different directions and you know in the theater people were always going off to different regional companies around the country and you know some would go out to california and the east coast theater world was was somehow like an adjunct to my own family that was on the east coast and and my own crowd of friends from high school and college that I'd stayed in touch with and and then going to california was like a total severance and it wasn't until i started working regularly and particularly until I started to do movies and on location, that that I began to feel that same approximation of deep kindredness. You know, when you're just a guest star, you come in and you kind of, you're like the new kid in school and you go to the lunch, the cafeteria and every, during lunch and everybody's in their little clusters because everybody's doing the show that, that are regulars. And the crew that works together every day, they all know each other well. And, and you just sort of, I guess I'll go sit with hair and makeup. They, my makeup on they know me (laughs) and uh you branch out to the oh there's there's somebody from wardrobe i know them and you don't want to look like you're trying to get in too tight with the the actors and the director or whatever so all those self-conscious things i remember in the beginning in tv and teamsters used to be like real teamsters like thugs almost (laughs) they were grandfathered and
0: First time I had I walked to a set, I could hear in the distance, I saw them all, the crusty guys, the hard-working laborers, the union guys, and they were like, oh, here here comes the talent. <laughs> I'm like, guys, we're all in this together. You're talented too. But I get it now. What they were saying was, you know, it's referred to as the talent.
1: Yeah. You know, but I, I, did, I did Bond, as I'm sure you did, uh, doing movies like Pirates where you did several. I didn't do that many sequels, but... Uh, I did a lot of movies on location and became like incredibly close and like family. And and at one point I think I had just done The Cherry Orchard as a film in Bulgaria, um, at the ex-king of Bulgaria's estate, an old Greek director who had done classics like Zorba the Greek and Electra, Iphigenia, the adolescent. He'd gone all over the world to get the cast. And so we were from all over the world and like the farm I'd grown up on in a weird kind of way there there was a feeling of kindredness among us and because we were all had to be there from the first day of shooting to the end and as each of us he saved the last day of shooting for the exit from the cherry orchard as each one makes their exit there's massive rain machine working on the window in this incredible estate and as we walked out into this little couple of courtyard each having made our exit one after the, the next, we all just sat there in silence and started sort of, we almost had like a group cry because we felt this thing of being like from a gypsy tribe that comes from a hundred broken families that comes together, falls in love and, and has to leave and move on to the next. And we were actually moving on to different countries when we moved on and we knew you know and there were older people at the time that was you know 20 some odd years ago and and uh, several of them are gone and and ne- I never saw them again after that but we all had that and we kind of knew it at the time we sat there weeping in the in the hidden by the the rain machine in the uh, courtyard there
0: mm. Yeah, there is an instant bond. I think when, particularly, you know, in theatre, we we have the the rehearsal process, which is a that's the part of theatre that I love. You really get the bonding process with the with the material, with the narrative, with the characters, with the yeah. cast mates and crew and the director, all of that. And on film and TV, maybe people who are, are outside the business aren't aware. Like you mentioned, guest star TV, you come in, you might do three or four days filming, you might do one day's filming. And you literally show up and there isn't really a lot of rehearsal time or or blocking time. So it's kind of in and out. But on a movie, I remember on Pirates, particularly two and three, which we filmed back to back for over 18 months, you're dealing with births, multiple births. You're dealing with multiple deaths, not just of extended family members, but of crew members and in rare instances cast. And that sense of humanity and life in session um, it really does bond you together with this group of people, like you said, this merry band of traveling players who I think in some respects were maybe drawn to the the arts because perhaps of some childhood uh, lack of recognition mm-hmm. and we wanted to be seen, felt heard and connected. So we acted out and we we played a little more. And in terms of family, you have two daughters. Uh, what are the most important things you're trying to teach your daughters about relationships and interpersonal communication, what what traits do you hope that your daughters will find in someone else as they get older?
1: Put up several clever things to say while you were formulating that question, which I'm going to now let go um, and be genuine. You know, I think really to uh, to have empathy for others and to really listen to their. Bring, bring forth that which is within them in the way of talent and ability and creativity in whatever direction, whatever field it might be. Just bring it all the way out. And don't let things, imaginary blocks get in their way, but always be aware of people that are in the way and seeing them as three-dimensional beings like themselves who need to be heard and cared about.
0: So recently we've seen in in the public discourse the last few years, this cancel culture promoting toxic masculinity, all men bad, smash the patriarchy or the the patriarch or the father figure, dominating social and mainstream media. What, What challenges do you as a father face in raising two daughters who I would imagine at some stage they're going to be looking for a partner? How does the male relate to the, the female, the masculine to the feminine, the anima and the animus? You're a dad, you're a great father, you have two daughters, and they obviously generationally are growing up in a time where a lot of the messaging that's out there in the media and the press and social media, or anti-social media, as I sometimes call it, is the very idea of men is bad. Do you have any issues with that? With them, and if they're dating or boyfriends, or how do you work through that?
1: They're not there yet, and thankfully, COVID has maybe forestalled the onset. I'm got to look on the bright side. I've, I've got a ten-year-old who's about to turn eleven, and a fourteen-year-old who is very much in the middle of fourteen. Yeah, you know, I, I had children. Obviously, nobody does any math at all because you're quite later in life than the most conventional fathers. And my mother had me in her 40s. So I she was an old school, uh, you know, she was born in Texas in 1913. And she was a rebel who read Ralph Waldo Emerson's essay on self-reliance after, you know, in, in college. And, uh, and that became her sort of... Moving force to go on a search, which took her out of Texas and to the East Coast, ultimately, well, right away to New York City, and, and then all kinds of interesting things after that. But um, she still had ingrained in her something from the generation before, because she was old enough to be the mother of many of my friends growing up, mothers. So, too, I'm old enough to be the father of many of my kids' friends, fathers. And so it's like skipped two generations. and there's something that seems so, you know when my mom did pass at 102, my my daughter, you know, maybe she was maybe she was nine at the time my 14 year old said, "I think daddy, maybe Amma was the most wisdomy person who I ever lived." And uh, she <laughs> put it in that way, she was consoling me saying all kinds of other amazing things about how now she's free she isn't encumbered by her body basically and she can when we ride our bikes down to the river she can come with us and all kinds of other things they were cheering me up because they'd never seen me weep Um, and that there is something that is in them that we were they were just talking about her last night things that she said and stayed with her because they They came from a place of wisdom and a a place of time. There's an erosion of many things, the reinvention of the wheel constantly in terms of parenting and how it ought to be done. And, you know, trying to adhere to something, trying not to throw the baby out with the bathwater while raising your babies is the biggest challenge, I think. Because there's a tremendous amount of pressure, especially in in our creative circles, the progressive left of, of Hollywood and all the rest, which we left certain principles are just assumed. And many of them are true and good to take on, but many of them have to be questioned. And you're always having to find your own journey. That's the thing. I think parenting is the same as true with any creative artist. You have to find your own path at the end of the day. You know, you can study map making and, and you can read Everything. Listen to everybody uh, from Time and and you're still going to be thrown on yourself and realize there is no roadmap. This is just uncharted territory that is unique to this moment, right now. Mm. And so, to make the parallel to acting, make the little cross back. I think studying a text and and studying your character and and having years of experience doing that, it always comes down to when the camera's rolling or when you're in front of the audience, how can I be here now? How can I take from what I've learned and throw it all away and and trust to listen and respond in the moment? And that's sort of what you have to do as a parent too.
0: Yeah, I think as a parent, part of that that the beginning of that journey, I don't know about you, obviously you and I didn't give birth, but I, I cut the umbilical cords of both my boys and that the symbolism of separation and i think that is part of that journey to allow our sons and daughters to self actualize have agency have sovereignty over who they are and to walk their own path as the native american indian code of ethics says others may walk it with us no one can walk it for is it the path is ours alone to walk how do we arrive at that place of true separation so that the individual daughter or son can become a fully self actualized individual and know that they can they can reach out if needed, but they are self-sufficient in the world and self-reliant, to throw back to your mentioning of Emerson, who I, I love. He's one of my favorite philosophers, particularly his book, Friendship and Love. And self-reliance, I think, is a, a little bit less of a lyrical read, but still just as important. Let's talk 24, okay? Because we have a lot of connections with 24. We didn't work together and we didn't... F- film any scenes together although we were on the show at the same time and i was i did film scenes with your wife sarah who played nina myers in fact i remember going in as you probably are aware on 24 everything's fluid people think these scripts are done a year in advance or six months in advance or a few months in advance it was literally real time i remember going in for one episode and my character michael amador who coincidentally uh, was arms dealer and virus broker for the Cordella virus, if you can believe that, through season three, right? Very interesting. And I remember meeting Sarah at the big, there was a scene where I was negotiating the purchase of the virus between separate bidders, and there was Kiefer playing Jack Bauer and his crew, and then the, the lights appeared in the distance and out steps Nina Myers. And she met her demise, I think, a, a couple of episodes after that. It was supposed to be me, but they rewrote the script. And such, is the, such are the vagaries of episodic television on a show where sooner rather than later, most recurring and guest star characters are going to die. How did you meet? Did you meet working? Were, were you working on a job together? Was that, or were you introduced? I'm curious. I've never asked you.
1: No, we were both there for the first day of shooting on 24. Uh, of the pilot, we met uh, in the trailer. Um, and, you know, we met, and I, it's funny because I'd written in a book that I was finally ready to meet my match, ready to meet someone at eye level. And I gazed across and our eyes hit and deflected. She was down at the other end.
0: Are you talking about the makeup and hair trailer commonly yeah, referred to as the worst?
1: You were sitting in chairs in the hair and makeup trailer and there's a mirror that's continuous and light. And so light in both of our eyes connected in the mirror and, uh, and then diverted. And I remember I'd introduced, I knew the, I knew the hair and makeup people from other jobs. And so it was like old home week for us. And she'd just flown out the day before from New York, having just gotten the part, but you know, she just had this a uh, radiant quality about her, and I thought, play it cool. And so I, I didn't introduce my, you know, I didn't like chat. I just chatted with the people there. And at one point, they put a, a, they cut my hair or something. They put a apron on me. Why am I missing that word? what is the word that they put around your neck and cape? You know, cape,
0: that's it. Yeah, a cape. It's a cape.
1: But it, it, it's worn, instead of like a cape that you fly around this way, it's it's worn primarily this way. It's very shaven, you know, whatever. It had all sorts of, you know, moons and stars and a very bright purple. And I, and I looked at uh, I feel a bit like a wizard in this. And 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 Sarah, a little too suddenly and a little too loud, confirmed, Oh my God, I was just I was just thinking that. You look <laughs> just like a wizard. <laughs> and I... Is the magic working? Um, and uh, but anyway, cut to after lunch touch ups. We're back in the trailer. We'd met each other. We you know gone out and done a, a an initial scene and came back. We were back in the hair and makeup trailer, and all the power went out. The gen and the generator died or whatever on the set where where the location where we were. And so we were just everybody left the trailer. Except us. And we just stayed there and kept talking because we were talking a chair or two apart. And so we just stayed and talked in the dark for maybe forty-five minutes before they (laughs) powered it back up. And everybody came back in. And and I think it was it was in that exchange that something was transmitted that we weren't just looking at each other or playing any kind of game. It was just communicating. She did ask for you know, because I lived in LA, whether I knew how to get to such and such a place that she'd been to when she was here before visiting her brother. And I said, actually, that's two doors down from where I live up in the hills. And I can either make you a little map and show you how to get there, or I I could join you. And, you know, she's going to be back in New York in another week. And we both knew that there was no time to play games and, you know, be cool. So she said, well, I'd like you to join me. And so it, uh, so it began and has yet to, uh, it continues and now 20 years next month.
0: Wow. 20 is not right. 20 years. Well, you have such a great relationship and a, and a great bond. And she's such a, like you said, radiant effervescent uh, person. Have you worked together since then? Oh my
1: God. Countless times. Not a lot of you know, just fun projects with friends, but Uh, I think the first thing we did a a short with Sarah's best friend was Amy Barrett was moving into from from childhood from St. Louis growing up uh, was doing a a short film uh, that we both did pretty, pretty soon after we met. And then, you know, you know, the movie, The Maestro that I did. Have you seen it? The Maestro? Maybe not. I I saw
0: it a while ago.
1: Yeah, but she, she played my wife in that. And because yeah. Sarah had lived in Italy for a little while, she could speak fluent in Italian and as she does in that. And we just finished a movie uh last year that was shot on our one of our properties in Maine, developed for the purpose of shooting films. And uh friend Steve Balderson came out and had a script for us that was uh, set in that environment and uh so we just—that's going to be coming out. That's in post-production now. We have done. You know, Carla Gugino was doing a, a, a pilot called um, uh, Karen Cisco, and and they asked me to come and play the guest star uh, character in it. And the guy had to have a wife in it at one point. We had just gotten married, and they said, "You want can Sarah play my wife?" And they go, "Oh my God, would she?" It's not a big part, and there's nothing there for her, but you know, yes, yes. So they flew her. We shot it in Miami, and and Carla and Sebastian, her boyfriend, Sebastian Gutierrez, uh, and and uh, Sarah and I all hung out and had a great time, bonded. They became great friends. I knew they would the minute I met Carla, and uh, they, they, it sort of became part of a bigger crowd that we've stayed in touch with over the years. Um, and Sebastian directed. Uh, we both did a couple of movies with him that uh, he did with all of his friends, independents. Yeah, you know, it's just these overlapping waves and, and uh, there's another project that's coming up that we're supposed to work on together. And, and uh, yeah, yeah, a lot of it. We, we consider ourselves the lunts of independent filmmaking.
0: You've been on a, a bit of a journey recently, on a bit of a mission uh, with regards to film and creating a studio. Tell me about that, it's in Maine, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, and it's seven or eight years ago, we we ended up getting a farm in Maine on a nice plot of land and uh, it was an old dairy farm, the Wadsworth Dairy Farm, and on nice strip of the Saco River, big, beautiful field and tons of woods and uh, old farmhouse, carriage house and a barn. And I think when I first left New York to go to California, And I I told my friends in New York theater and and the art world, I'm just going to go out long enough to make enough money to come back and be able to buy a farm. We'll have farm freedom. And that was the the slogan. And every time I came back, it was like, can we, do we have farm freedom yet? And Not yet. Um, It just took a little longer. I got a little distracted, traveled around the world a few times. I had a hard time pinning down that, that, uh, that wife and, And figuring out who that was going to be and getting married and having kids finally i got the farm and i am very excited about it because we fell in love with maine and a few years in we just decided we couldn't bear to go back to la just as it was you know catching fire uh when it was the leaves were turning fiery colors and and the harvest was coming in and and snow and we just wanted to have the kids grow up in a a normal, natural world like that. And they were so in love with the the country there, that uh, we found, you know, and also in LA, going back and forth between private school and then public school, and not wanting to be too privileged, not wanting to be too rough and and just find our place. And we found a a great place uh, on the water in Maine, not far from, you know, about an hour from the farm. To move the family full time, about uh, well, be three years before long, and it's just like we're just so happy that we did it because we've been developing two other properties for film production, and we're working collectively with a great uh, initiative to bring. Uh, tax incentives to for film to the state of Maine. Yeah,
0: I'm interested in that. Tell me about that. Tax incentives to to those who don't know. Maybe you can explain just a, a little bit about that but to the state of Maine and why that's so important for filmmakers and creatives in in that community where you live.
1: Well, it's so important that I'm filming this show that's set in New Hampshire in Montreal, and because of the tax incentives that are provided by Canada. To the film industry and so benefits their economy and maybe back to some of the pushes and pulls and tugs of left and right that are everybody on in own little camps people have a hard time getting it together to do things that are mutually beneficial the state of maine is a divided state and uh, it has yet to get tax incentives for film in any kind of reasonable way but but then what we're looking for isn't one that will be a, a handout to Hollywood. It'll be one that'll really it's designed to be beneficial to the local economies uh, in all the ways that film can be when people with perhaps deeper pockets come and settle in and start spending money there and uh, get houses like I do and pay taxes on them and want to uh, not tear down uh, architectural history, but rebuild it and, and restore it, not clear-cut beautiful woods, but protect them. And so for Californians here and there to put a little bit of their money where their mouths and their hearts have been in terms of the environment and sequester some carbon, but some good old tree growth and uh, and come together in a place. And this is my big dream. This is, this is the, the thing that I've wanted to do since I was 18 or 19 years old and will feel deeply unfulfilled if I don't accomplish, which is to be able to have a space, a free space, for artists to come and of all stripes, musicians, actors, painters, writers, uh, you know, cinematographers uh, people in all aspects of the industry to come together and have a space where they can do their dream projects without consideration to the the sort of to, to think outside the box, off the grid a little bit in a place that's like a summer camp for our all of our grown-up friends and and their their offspring of all ages to come and and collaborate and and have a space to unwind and not have it be so financially driven and or commercially driven that it can't be something that uh, I just feel like I feel like we tell stories so much in the same way all the time and I really want to try to create a space where people can come and make new art and and be inspired by one another because i think all the greatest art movements throughout history have come together like brian eno says it's seniors not genius it's not one individual but it's many individuals coming together with a group Uh,
0: yeah the synergistic of the genius it takes a village many people who don't make movies and don't know it's not about three or four people it's a tremendous crew and team of people working as we call it, above the line, below the line, outside the lines. I'm going to onboard you. In fact, I just did onboard you onto Clubhouse. We did the welcome event. We're going to be doing more events called the main event, main with an E. Well, we'll get into this and talk about this more. Can you tell people what they might expect if they come to the main event and some of the subjects that we're going to talk about?
1: One thought I had to get out of the way and block other thoughts from going forth is the excitement of having uh, people with a lot of experience come and mentor people from Maine to build up crews so that we can actually shoot there and, and draw and, and that that's a way that we would be supporting the local community because it's an aging population and something that would lure young people to stay or come to the state is knowing that they can work in this beautiful environment and earn a living, a good living doing it.
0: That's so important, the revitalizing a, a community that maybe is, that is steeped in history and, and has its traditional beautiful ways. And that reinvigoration of being able to tell stories that maybe reflect on and come from and are born from the genesis of that community, right?
1: Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I've cooked since I was 19. My father got me my first walk at 19 and and uh, gave me the first lessons in how to use it properly. And And so I'm friends with a lot of chefs and uh, building this environment in Maine at the farm, uh, very much with food culture as a part of it so that people can break bread as they're, <clears throat> and have gardens that we work to to bring and make the food fresh and, uh, and come together uh, to exchange ideas. And so I'm want, I want very much I'm very excited to have a place where people can share their ideas and I can listen to them about what they want to do and see how I can help bring that about. But also, I, I, my particular thing is, is uh, early American storytelling. I feel like one of the ways that we've gotten so divided is that in many cultures, in ancient and tribal cultures, uh, the the shaman would heal the culture uh, by drawing a circle of, the word "shaman" I think has been popularized in a bad way recently, um, but the the idea of the medicine man that, that would heal by uh, hearkening to the the origin myth, where we began, mm-hmm. and uh, draw a circle in the sand, and this is the beginning of all things, and this is the beginning of the illness that the patient is suffering, so that they see it in context, they're drawn out of the myopic uh, temporal time into primordial objective time. And in so doing, they can breathe and come back to the moment without the anxiety, creating static, uh, and a lot of healing.
0: The shamanic rituals, I remember when I started practicing shamanic rituals and practices, the recentering the self regulating back to the breath again, aren't we Or back to the archetypal story?
1: And our archetypal story, our origin myth, is a pretty interesting one of how the country began. And again, a lot of po- political correctness is colored but there's one way to see this. But I, I want to find a way to maybe tell the story of uh, the founding fathers. Maybe talk about the uh, the Masonic uh, origins, the eye in the in the pyramid on the other side of the dollar bill that says we aren't necessarily a Christian or a non-Christian, or but that. We have freedom of religion and from religion, and big ideas behind us, esotericism, and to tell some of those stories in ways that would be challenging, and and that uh, the the struggle that the Masons had at, at one point to uh, the, the relationship between abolitionism and. and to, to me, the beginning of the suffragette movement. I want to I get at all those struggles. We tried, we came away from, the, from Great Britain. We, we had a revolution against the British. And so there was a desire to not just repeat the caste system and the class system the way it had been uh, over there. And yet we fell into these habits and how did we try to un- untie ourselves? And what were we like as a, as a teenager, as a country? 18 years in after 17 we know a lot about the revolutionary war a lot about the civil war and it's those years in between uh that i'm curious about and i think that would bring us together to tell those stories together and not have all sorts of opinions before we come into it but find it as we go Mm,
0: i love that moving from hateful to grateful through history and finding the different narratives between the lines of a historical time or a historical event. So we're going to be bringing in some filmmakers, some festival organizers, some actors, directors. What do you hope to achieve through the conversations that you and I have on Clubhouse and the bigger picture of policy change so that the taxes incentives can be brought into Maine and more movies can get made there? Yeah, just
1: that... uh increased incentives uh for for uh below the liners not above the liners the money gets spread out and it just helps to train people so they can have a nice uh, a good crew available so that we could do an interesting cable series or we could do an in- interesting independent film not big boffo big budget stuff but real great uh personal storytelling and i want to hear what everybody's personal dream is the kinds of stories they want to tell and uh you know and i i want to i want to approach things in inventive uh artistic exciting new ways and find a new language to speak together and and i'm interested in hearing everybody's input on that
0: the main event with an e i love it so you work with johnny depp right, on Transcendence in 2014 and City of Lies in 2018, right? Mm -hmm. What was your experience working with him and what kind of person did you find him to be?
1: Well, I'd known him um, before his, uh, you know, meteoric rise, but I guess he'd already become a star. He had, when he had his club uh, on Sunset. Viper Room. Yeah, it was just such a cool place to hear friends play music I knew a lot of people that played there and I was going one night just to see and and uh somebody told me I was on the list so then and, and I I I met him there for the first time you know a long time ago and and he just came up and prayed he'd seen Sid and Nancy uh, sometime before that maybe a year or so before that and so he just came up with enthusiastic praise for my acting and And uh, I don't think I'd seen him in anything yet. I I knew who he was and stuff. So I was just very flattered and humbled and a little bit tongue-tied because I couldn't genuinely reciprocate. Um, But I went on to see many of the things he did between then and when we worked together again and was uh, obviously very impressed with all the different characters that he'd come up with over the years. You know, maybe I'd seen Edward Scissor's hand or something like that had happened and I forget, but uh, he was a great guy. I, I don't know that he remembered me as well uh, when we met later or just that our characters, we, we didn't have a lot of time together in in the next two projects. Uh, we just sort of were on set at the same time and reconnected. But it's that thing that I, I can remember Right around Sidney Nancy, a lot of actors really loved that character that I played. They loved that movie. And like John Goodman before he did Roseanne, just like, Man, I just gotta tell you, you are so fucking good in that thing. I just god damn it, you're a great actor. You know, and like and then I do, do you think he if I if I walked by today, would he know who I was? I don't know. Because I never saw him again. I always wanted to. But uh Johnny had been, you know, at the time moved by that character, and I don't know that I'd, he'd seen me in anything that I'd done since that had moved him similarly because there wasn't any real spark of recognition. But I knew that the people that worked, had worked with him intimately, the directors of both of those films, were friends of mine. And uh, I sort of did them a favor because there were smaller roles coming in to play the parts that I did, not as much in City of Lies. Um that was a, a substantial role. But uh I talked to both of them and 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 they both had just nothing but the highest of praise for him. And 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 everybody I know that's ever worked with him has. And I, I know I've I got called for some reason because I think they found those old registers of who was who was on a guest list at the Viper Room, and I got called by some private detective working for her, Amber, at the time. Uh, to try and get some dirt on Johnny, I said, no, 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 you're not going to get any dirt for me. I don't have any dirt. And all I know is good is praise that everybody's had for him over the years. So, And, and the guy ended up calling me back and go, you know what, I just want to let you know your, your report's been confirmed by everybody I've spoken to.
0: Yeah. yeah, that's what's astonishing. His life has been turned upside down. He's lost roles recently as a consequence of allegations that to date have still not been proven. And with this with this atmosphere of cancel culture that seems to deem trials in the court of public opinion and doesn't rely upon the judicial system to take its full process. Do you think it's right what's happened to him? Do you think because his career has been really negatively and adversely affected?
1: Well no, I think it's insane and, and uh you know we all know Johnny's going to be all right he's he's made some good investments i think he's got some islands and some things like that <laughs> to fall back on so you don't worry about him because he's a smart and creative guy and i can imagine him going off and and learning to you know do some incredible thing because he's a great musician too and and he's an enthusiast for the arts and you can just imagine him going well okay this is the way life has taken me and and he'll make he'll make good with it and then he could be so interesting down the line when this, you know, 99% likelihood that it passes uh, and he'll be back, you know, as a, as a new, you know, older, more interesting version of himself. But, uh, yeah, I think it's insane. It, you know, it's happened so much. Why, why is it that you don't need a, the, the same principle of innocent until proven guilty? To you know, the democratic judicial system doesn't apply in popular culture. That it's just gossip hounds that get to determine the fate and and a, a, a collective opinion. And but there is something about celebrity, I think, that uh, has taken the place of the, of the of the Greek gods in our culture. It's it's they're lofted so high that. It's impossible not to sort of, at some point, while everybody's genuflecting and bowing in absurd obeisance to the star, dumb. That then they they want to see it fall phoenix like, not phoenix like. Then they want to see it rise phoenix like from the ashes, oftentimes. But they they want to bring it down and. and And I think that that's, at some point, the disparity between the normalcy of their lives and the exalted plane develops resentment, and they want to see them brought down. Because as much as they like to build them up, they do love to bring them down, don't they?
0: Uh, Yeah.
1: And and find out the the sordid little details. And then they can relate to them. You know, so there's a lot of projection of people's and human,
0: own humanity, yeah, feelings
1: of guilt and shame and, shame yeah. and whatever else that then they, they dump onto these public
0: figures. I mean, he's arguably one of the and been for quite a while now one of the most beloved actors in Hollywood. People who've worked with him, like yourself, like myself, over many years, decades all speak so very highly of him and that there, there may be a few reasons for this and you just did, but why do you think that so many former co-stars have not spoken up on his behalf or expressed more outrage at how he's been treated? Is it because people are worried about reputation and they don't want to be seen to go down with a quote unquote sinking ship?
1: Yeah. I mean, I haven't, I haven't seen the Woody Allen, uh, Mia Farrow thing on, on uh, HBO. But there's one guy that that keeps making uh, statements on Facebook, much along the line that you're making, and I know it's a totally different situation. But he he's speaking on behalf of Sun Yi and, and the daughters, and you know saying for some reason, why is it okay to sweep them all under the bus? And somehow you know cancel culture is is weirdly selective and and the the mob mentality of piling on makes these strange little exceptions for the the political correctness is like yes this is what we must do and then but they'll do something aberrant on another respect um i'm not articulate well because i don't know the material and i'm i'm loath to make an opinion about it and i probably would be loathe to make an opinion one way or the other even when I watch it um, because it's just all so loaded. I didn't care for Woody's last movie, The Cafe Society just said, no, no I'm
0: kidding. Uh, um you know, going back to what we were saying, we are seeing an alarming increase in the number of celebrity figures and men who are being falsely accused even in the absence of any proof and only hearsay or heard-say evidence, as I call it, many are losing access to, to their careers, their children, their homes, their reputations, simply because the narrative is becoming such that we're supposed to, in some respects, believe all women all of the time and assume that men are guilty until proven innocent. I think it's because
1: for so long, women were disregarded, their opinions weren't listened to, and if if any woman dare raise a voice, you would get squashed by the, the power brokers. You know, I think that that's a big, big part of it. So it's, it's, it's like a a pendulum compensating. I think, uh, on another level, the sort of stranglehold that political correctness has on popular culture and on, you know, Hollywood in a lot of ways, uh, is, Part of what brought about, dare I say, the phenomena of a Donald Trump, who just uh, absolutely balls out, uh, not trying to say the right thing, not trying to be politically correct, blatantly flying in the face of that, knowing, calculating that there's a lot of people out there that are so fed up with it, that they'll just, I like that guy because he's going to blow it all up. And So there's obviously there's half of the culture out there that aren't a part necessarily of popular culture that will do the same thing. They'll pile on just to be politically incorrect. They'll call liberals libtards because they know that we don't believe in using the word retarded anymore. Libtards
0: and rubcons or (laughs) repcons. yeah. Going back to what we were talking about, Johnny Depp and the push for feminism and inequality, I think there's a difference and also a similarity in that the needle doesn't need to move too far in the other direction so that we are cancelling a whole sex of the population. And I, I have seen a difference between the true equality feminists who want and deserve equality—that that push to be mm-hmm. fair and equal and balanced—and the third and fourth wave feminists who really want to to eviscerate and make the idea of men and fathers extinct. And I think it's really important to to delineate the difference because this back and forth, this politically correct, politically incorrect, is like to me, I see just extremes. And the, the more doubt, the more nuanced, the more moderation we can de-amplify from yeah. being extreme but of course we can joke around and people certain people do using the word libtards or whatever it may be we can all get on the playground but how we can come together and have that more mature discourse that civil discourse with heterodox thinking that challenges the orthodoxies is is becoming seemingly increasingly harder to do these days don't you think
1: yeah absolutely i mean everybody uh well it seems to want to take the stance of their crowd. I mean that's why I wonder you know why how so many people could go along with with the the whole trumpian you know stop the steal. Well there wasn't a steal. So you can't stop something that didn't happen, but they've he sort of there was a pressure put on everybody that was in lockstep to go along with this lie, this preposterous lie that the election had been stolen from him instead of the fact that he had lost and couldn't acknowledge that.
0: Yeah, when you talk about lockstep, it reminds me of lockdown. We've all experienced the lockdown recently. In fact, you didn't you recently complete filming a movie called Lockdown set yeah, in the did. midst of a global pandemic? Can you tell us anything about that and how that experience was and when it might be out?
1: Yes, very soon. The trailer's coming out March 1st. And I'm um, I either mean, supposed to be a surprise element, and just today, Bizan Tang, the very talented writer-director of this piece, which is an international piece, it's going to it's filmed in uh, Hong Kong and Britain and and me in the States. Whether or not I'm on the poster, uh, which the, the many people seem to think would be a good idea, because there are, there aren't people that have that many uh, credits to to. He's a new filmmaker, and and uh, he he talked me into it, and <laughs> I was intrigued from the minute we made contact. Um, I think he's you know the huge future, and uh, I can't wait to see it. But yeah, he's he's trying to they're trying to calculate whether or not I'm a surprise uh, element or whether I'm going to be a part of the big part of the the story. And uh, I don't want to talk too much about it, just because I don't want to spoil anybody's potential surprises.
0: All right, we understand. We've teased a little there, and thank you for sharing. You know, I,
1: you've, you've diverted. You've come back to your your pet subject of Johnny Depp and, and the the uh, the unfairness, and I couldn't agree more. And I, I I sense that you've jumped away from my wanting to go into politics, which I know is just divisive and terrible. But there is something so so interesting in trying to track, in a way, uh, you know, the, the left and the right and how differently they operate. The, the fact that Al Franken got uh, canceled and e- eviscerated. And, and who
0: did he get canceled by? That's what, what I think is so telling.
1: Yeah. And, you know, you're not allowed to even speak up on his behalf, just in, even in so far as questioning it without getting piled up on that's right and and so you can lose so people in this day and age of everybody trying to get more followers all the time more likes um you can suddenly get unliked and disfollowed and cancelled because of your opinions and so i i sort of i i noticed that to be true i played a lot of of conservatives i played a lot of uh corporate guys, a lot of military guys, a lot of spooks, a lot of people on the inside of the defense uh, organization. And I always tried to not separate from the character, but learn as much as I could from that character's point of view, read the books that they might be reading and uh, study the the resources and see things from their point of view. And I think I got a lot of people that who were paying attention to such things, uh, a lot of fans, of, of the right because of my not having played down to characters on the right in projects that they've seen over the years that they may be suspected were leaning to the left. And even when I was playing the bad guy, I played them with enough self-respect and intention, um, not commenting on it, uh, that, that I, I won people over to my side. Well, obviously being the bad guy. And so it came as a bit of a shock to that crowd that I was as repelled by Trump and was as vocal about it on Twitter in particular. And I watched my following just like evaporate and and I got a lot of hate. And I just said, look, the, the hate you're sending me is... The, the, the reason I have a problem with him is because he says such horrible things to, about people. He's just being, he's just throwing so many groups of people under the bus. And uh, you know, like Mexicans are my family. I, I lived in California for a long time and the people that helped raise my children, the people that helped clean my house, the people that make my garden sat down at my table as part of my family. To hear them and to know them and hear how they were being treated at that time and how it started to shift and the tone of 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 public discourse was shifting and the animosity that they were feeling and and it broke my heart. And I felt very much like defending them, you know, with each and every one of the, the sort of groups that seemed to be targeted by this rising sort of white supremacist sort of base. Um, it felt like the, the last gasp of some effort to try and hold on to something that was inevitably going to give way, that the voting base is going to become less predominantly white. I, I, I'll, I'll get out of politics. We'll get out of politics. But but uh, trying to love one another, trying to see past our differences, whether it be male, female, or black and white, or Latino and American, um... To me, the more we can feel our connectedness to one another and feel our, our humanity shared, and we are one. On a cellular level, uh, sort of more evolved and better off we will be.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just to, to round that up, I became an American citizen because I saw Barack Obama running for president and I wanted to not only be able to take part in the voting process, but I wanted to help his campaign and I made phone calls. And this last presidential campaign, it's no secret because I was very public about it. I I publicly endorsed Andrew Yang because I think a new voice was, and I still believe a new voice is needed. And, And as much as the vilification of the right over the last few years may have been justified i think the lack of self-critique within my what i consider my party and my side has has been really doing a disservice and i think both sides frankly Xander, both sides were guilty of vote for me or die with this virus i've tried as best as i can even on this show uh, with the respondent, I invited on one of the high-ranking members of Antifa and high-ranking members of the Proud Boys to come and sit round the the table and break conversational bread and see if they might find at least a shard of humanity from each other's perspective and connection. Because I think that's so vital, and I, don't, I just don't like, and this is the last thing I'm going to say, I don't think it does any good to fight fire with fire. So when I see Bob De Niro... Standing on stage at the Tony's and he has the platform and he can speak in an eloquent way One of the most iconic directors of our, our generation and he stands up there and goes, I don't I, I just I'm disappointed in, in my side that we, we we don't do better in those situations But that being said, I think it's ultimately we have to look inside ourselves And maybe it's a bigger ideological battle between the individual and the group and the the mob group mentality of cancel culture is just uh,
1: yeah. Well, I mean that's why I look to to the the thing that I I think was a big part of the consequence of political correctness is that you're going to generate an extreme like a Trump. Um, but the thing that the people found refreshing about him was this lack of tiptoeing around a lot of these political correct debilitating unspoken rules that well people... that's
0: it the speech police and the thought police and I, th- I think it's postmodern identitarianism or intersectionality this notion that we can't speak freely and that a word suddenly becomes weaponized that five years ago was fine to say and who says it's orwellian i want to hear what the bigots and the racists are saying i wanted that's that's the central tenant of free speech that's just my thoughts
1: yeah yeah, I agree. Like, the weaponizing is the, is the issue. I mean, I think that's the, uh, a little bit at the crux that there's been such a a move for so many years of people uh, hunkering down and acquiring weaponry and assault weaponry and not even being able to have a conversation about what, what kind of limits might ought to be placed so that it isn't the Wild West again, so that we just don't Revert to you know not being able to feel comfortable letting our kids go to school and uh, you
0: know I agree I agree and I think I think we also have to be mindful not to have words weaponized as violence as long as it's not incitement to violence we have freedom of speech I've seen what's happened in my beloved UK with hate speech laws and how that's really become totalitarian and authoritarian and how the state. Grabs control so quickly during a time of crisis and is very reluctant to give it back. So, we get, we're getting towards the end. There's a section that I, I play now that, that I know you'll take part in. It's the part of the show where we go a little deeper, we go eclectic within the dialectic and see what's in the philosophical cue. Socrates' greatest axiom was probably know thyself. Xander Barclay, how well do you know thyself? Let's find out, shall we, as we play the philosophical cue. The meaning seeker, everything happens for a reason, we make up afterwards, that's my definition of meaning. Where does Xander Barclay find meaning?
1: Invariably in breathing and sensing my body vibrating in the moment and taking in the impressions of whatever is in front of me in that moment.
0: What's the most meaningful moment of your life?
1: I suppose it's the moment of birth. And the next most meaningful would be the moment of my death. But I try to make the 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 passages a little Moments in between all have some kind of equal resonance, carrying my mortality on one shoulder and my birth on the other, um, trying to awaken to this moment now.
0: Mm. Where do you find meaning? You know,
1: I'm not that picky. Um, I, I have, you know, maybe a bit of a snotty proclivity when it comes to movies and trying to find things that have something to say rather than just a lot of visceral stimulus. Um, I do that with books. I tended to read when I was younger and read more before I had scripts that I had to read all the time. Uh, nonfiction, because I was curious to to learn and um, and sometimes got impatient reading about other people's experiences and I just wanted to go out and have my own experiences uh, to draw on. but. You know, drawing and painting and sculpting have always kept me sort of very much grounded. It's like me in this moment, holding a piece of charcoal, paintbrush, a sculpting tool, and the wood or the the materials. I, I like sensual materials, and they, uh, you know, like charcoal and gesso and uh, hard boards and and chisels and hammers and getting exercise by actually creating something and doing several things at once, um, you know, in a way trying to improve my eye, my mind and my physical condition all at once. Um, I like working outside. I've just taken since, since moving to Maine to working with chainsaws and 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 grinders and power tools to work on larger scale blocks of wood, now that I have many acres of forests and all kinds of trees to choose from.
0: If you could write your own epitaph, what would you want it to say? He was
1: here now then.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Very good. If you had one wish, what, what would it be?
1: To continue to be, for as long as it's possible in a reasonable
0: good condition? To be or not to be, that is the question. Xander Barkley, thank you so much for joining me on The Respondent. It's been an absolute pleasure. Great to see you, my friend. to see you. If you enjoy this video and podcast series, please help support production costs by subscribing to my YouTube channel. You can also follow me on Twitter for real time updates. Everyone is struggling with something, so please try to be more positive, encouraging of those less fortunate than you. Be kinder to others, and particularly yourself. Thanks for watching this episode of The Respondent. To continue this conversation, join The Respondent on the Clubhouse app. I hope to see you there. When you get what you desire, and you're not prepared to nurture, Desire will desert you. You will get what you deserved. Lose what you desire. Nothing in Between. A pocket oracle of philosophical quotes. Available now at realgreggellis.com.